0: Open the precious Word of God with me to Isaiah and the 65th chapter. Isaiah 65. Today we close out the book of Isaiah. If we take another Sunday for certain aspects or measures of review, so be it. If we don't, so be it. I have asked you in the beginning, half of the book, that you would take some time to review because it would all get lost together in a big mush, mushy marsh of your mind because there's so much material there. There's 1,281 verses and 66 chapters and averaging 19 and three-quarters verses per chapter. I hope that you'll remember some of these things that we've covered. Amen. We close it out today. Isaiah 65 and 66 go together because they use similar language in each of the chapters. It's no longer the prayer of 63 and 64. It's no longer just the praise of the glory of the Jewish church of 60 through 62. It is Isaiah wrapping things up and pointing all the way to two great events that are going to take place in chapter 66, and that's the calling of the Gentiles and making them priests and Levites. Even though we don't even come from Abraham, but we're priests and Levites, uh, made kings and priests of Jesus Christ, according to 1, nine 1, 6 and 5.9 of Revelation. And it will show us the destruction of Jerusalem when a noise comes out of the temple and other of the city by God bringing recompense and vengeance on those enemies of his. And his greatest enemies were the Jews who crucified his son Jesus Christ after 1,500 years of prophecies concerning him and messages from prophets about him. Isaiah 65, God justly punished the wicked in Israel and then he blessed elect Jews and Gentiles gloriously in the New Testament era of the gospel church of Jesus Christ. What we have here right now is the fulfillment of the better parts of 65 and 66 and so many of the other chapters that we've already covered. 65 and 66, They're different from the previous chapters of the intercessory prayer. If you remember last week, it was an intercessory prayer made by Isaiah on behalf of wicked Israel, and the whole thing was a prayer and and reflections leading up to that prayer. This is quite different. Both of these chapters refer to God creating new heavens and a new earth for the future gospel era. They both refer to Jerusalem being entirely new and full of joy and prosperity, unlike they had ever had before. And that is the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem which is above, which is the mother of us all. The setting and timing, based on reading all 49 verses, is from the return out of Babylon all the way to 70 A.D. And the great events that took place between, but especially at the end of that stretch of time. Around 70 A.D., the apostles had preached the gospel in the known world, Paul had been to Rome, Paul may have been to Spain, Paul may have been to Britain, and other apostles and other prophets and other evangelists and pastors and teachers of the time of Reformation had preached the gospel worldwide. And the city of Jerusalem was destroyed, the nation and state of Israel put to ruin. So there were two great events. Those who rejected God destroyed, and those who loved Him blessed and favored with a new church relationship with God and His Son. I don't want to introduce it anymore. Let's go to verse 1. Verse 1 is a section by itself. Verses verses 1 through 7, you've got to think and you've got to know your Bible a little bit, or you could get 1 and 2 confused, thinking that it's the same group of people, but it isn't. Verse 1 is a very different group of people from verse 2. And so I have broken out verse 1 as a lesson by itself, because it's the calling of the Gentiles. And like I told you before, and like I wrote you yesterday, I could be happy with one b and not go anywhere else. Right. That's only one half verse. That's only doing, you know, 1% of my job. It's a wonderful verse. Here I read to you Isaiah 65 and verse 1. I am sought of them that asked not for me. Amen. I am found of them that sought me not. I said, Behold me. Behold me. Behold me. Behold me. Just want to make sure you see it. Unto a nation that was not called by my name. We were not called by the name Jehovah. We were not called Israel. Elohim, in the last two letters of. Israel, a prince with God. We weren't called anything like that. We were pagan idolaters. And this is a wonderful verse. This is the calling of the Gentiles. And Paul uses this in Romans chapter 10, verses 19 through 21. He, he combines out of Deuteronomy and out of here, some great statements about the calling of the Gentiles. Because Paul said that the gospel was preached to the Jews, but they didn't really care about it. Only a few Jews converted and believed. But then the Gentiles heard it, and Gentiles did believe it. So we know what this verse means. We know it without even using Romans chapter 10, but it's nice to have the confirmation. Amen. Because when we look at it, this is a nation that was not called by the name of God, so it can't be Israel. It's, and, and these people were not asking or seeking God, And God revealed himself to them, which Israel was totally different. He had revealed himself to them, and they had pushed back and said, we don't want you. In verse 2, the contrast is powerful. Look at verse 2, even though we're not supposed to yet. I have spread out my hands all the day unto a rebellious people, which walketh in a way that was not good after their own thoughts. They didn't want God. And so the great difference here in these verses should cause us to cry out with praise and thanksgiving to God for saving us from Gentile nations and revealing himself to us that we might know him, the creator and living and true God of the Bible. Before we get out of these two chapters, a man that wants to bless himself needs to bless himself in the God of truth. That's because there's only one true and living God, and they had blessed themselves in the names of idols in the past, When there's only one source of blessing, and it's the God we worship. He is our Father, and He's not ashamed to be called our Father, and His Son is not ashamed to be called our Brother, and He splits the inheritance with us. We are so blessed. And it starts all right here in this first verse. We weren't asking, and we weren't seeking. And I hope as you read the Bible, you'll just slow down and look at it and ask yourself this question. Were they seeking Him or not? They weren't. They weren't seeking him. But they started seeking him. I want you to learn to read your Bibles carefully. I am sought of them that ask not for me. I am found of them that sought me not. Did they not seek him or did they seek him? Yes. And what made the difference? He did. Behold me. Behold me. And it changed us. Look at Lydia. Look at Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian band. He's begging God to show him more of what the Lord would like out of his life. And so the Lord sends an angel and sends him to Joppa, messengers to Joppa, to get Peter to come and visit him. It's a great story in Acts chapter 10 about Cornelius. We're no different. We or our parents or our parents' parents or their parents were called out of this world by the grace of God to know the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for revealing thyself to us. Those Jews were in Babylon for a good cause, and so because of what we read in Matthew 21, what we read in Matthew 22, God is going to take his kingdom away from them, take his gospel away from them, and give it to Gentiles. They deserve what happened in Babylon, and they deserve what happened in Rome 500 years later. Gentiles, pagan descendants of Cain, pagan descendants of Japheth, pagan descendants of Ham, had been content as idolaters. Our relatives were content. They were happy. Happy-go-lucky. You know, trusting chance and fate and their, and their gods. They had not asked to hear about a new god or a new religion. They were ignorantly happy. They had no connection to the Jehovah of Israel, and they didn't care about their loss. Pagans, with countless prayers never answered, never change gods. Do you know that that's a rule of the world? Do you want world history from the Bible? It's Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 9 through 13. No nation has ever changed its gods, but we changed ours. How did that happen? Behold me. Behold me. Oh, Lord, will you forgive me if I preach the rest of this chapter? I don't want to preach it. But I've made a commitment I'm going to live up to it because this church unanimously agreed that I wouldn't be able to. And I will prove you all wrong, but I will finish the book of Isaiah and I'll get back to the New Testament. Uh, I've loved Isaiah. And I've worked very hard for you. And all glory to God. He's been very merciful to us. He's been very merciful to us, and I thank him for that. God took the initiative and introduced himself to the Gentiles with a very bold change. And I never want you to forget those words. Brethren, in Isaiah 58, if we will practice godliness in our lives, when we pray, will he say, here I am? Did it teach us that in Isaiah 58? Which is better, Isaiah 65 or Isaiah 58? 65. Because 58 is us asking. 65 is him coming to us anyway without us asking. Behold me. Behold me. And we hadn't asked and we hadn't sought. 58 is us asking, okay. I mean this with all reverence. He's a prayer answering God. But he has grace that precedes our prayers. And you know that you would never have repented unless he had come to you. I want you to like those behold me's. You know who I'm talking to. Love them. I want want to stop and walk through this assembly and look at each one of you. Look at this. We all know that it happened with us. There was a time we were looking everywhere else at everything else. And the Lord said, behold me. And we had a vision like Isaiah chapter 6 where the Lord was sitting on his throne high and lifted up and it changed Isaiah's life. Here am I, send me. And here we are because... He revealed himself to us. Thank you, blessed God. This first verse is about Gentiles. They are the nation that was not called by his name. And he said, behold me to them, and introduced himself. Only one nation had God's name of Israel, a powerful prince with Elohim, and that was the Jews. If God had not introduced himself to you, then you would be a blaspheming Gentile even today. No man can come unto me except the Father which hath sent me. Draw him, and I will raise him up again at the last day. Everyone shall be taught of God. John 6, and 45, we have been taught of God. That's why we came to him. When I was a child, I was taught to memorize, and Sherry and I remembered this this past week or last week. We were taught John six thirty seven b That's where I learned the ABCs of verses you can pinpoint exactly what you want so that you can ignore the rest. That's been in a practice for a long time. This is way off track. Can I go way off track? Help me to come back to John 6:37. Way off track. Do you know the last verse of this book? And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me, for their worms shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. Would the Jews be smart enough to know that that verse was about them? As easily as in Matthew chapter 21. Do you know what the Jews do with the last verse of Isaiah? They remove it and double, verse 23. Same thing with the book of Ecclesiastes. Same thing with the book of Lamentations. Same thing with the book of Malachi. Do you know why? Because those four books end with nasty verses. Because they are rebels and they deserve those nasty verses. All of that was to say, we shouldn't, be too, we shouldn't be too picky in taking our verses apart and leaving out part of them. John 6, 37b, all that cometh unto me, him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. And so we learned that. Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. It is a great promise. But the first half of the verse is, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Right. Now that changes things drastically from the religion that I was taught. So, Let's love all the Word of God, and let's understand that God has taught us, according to John chapter 6, if God had not opened your heart like Lydia's, it would still be closed. Be glad for this gospel fact that God ordained you to eternal life. In Acts chapter 13, when Paul is preaching his first recorded sermon in Antioch of Pisidia, and I say that over and over again because I want you to know the difference, that Antioch of Syria, 300 miles north of Jerusalem, is where Paul's home church was. But across the Mediterranean Sea, in the middle of Turkey, was Pisidia, one of the provinces of Turkey, what is now called Turkey, part of the Roman Empire, and and part of Asia, Asia Minor of the Romans. And Paul preached there. And the whole city came out to hear him. And the Jews blasphemed, and so he turned to them, and he used verses like the end of this book. And like the end of Malachi, he cursed them and said, you have judged yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were, they, brother, yes, brother, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Is that our gospel? Is that what we believe how it happened? That God ordained us to eternal life, then introduced himself to us? And what should our response be? Glad! Brethren, please! We, there's 168 hours in a week. I'm going to take three of yours today. We are going to take three of each other's today. Are we going to be glad for the, for the time spent? And the Gentiles were glad, and they glorified the word of the Lord. What I want to do with you right now is glorify Isaiah 65 and verse 1. Behold me! Behold me! Behold me! He did it to me. I was at Bob Jones, and he didn't do it through chapel. <laughs> he did it in my room with the Bible, and I beheld him. Wonderful, Good. wonderful. I thank God for that, and we should all thank him for that and be glad and glorify him. Oh, we're bound to give thanks for this great transaction that's taken place in verse 1. Paul called Isaiah. Do you know what Paul said about Isaiah for this verse? Very bold. <laughs> you know why he was very bold? Because he's writing and speaking and preaching to Jews and he says the Lord's got himself another people made up of Gentiles out of a nation that weren't looking for him. He's going to reveal himself to them and he doesn't really need you anymore because he's tried for 1500 years and you've rejected him. And so Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10 and verse 20 "Isaiah is very bold <laughs> to blast the Jews and to inv- to bring in the Gentiles because it wasn't Paul that did it Paul, Paul put Paul fulfilled it, but it was Isaiah that said it. And Isaiah was a prophet. And you know, this is, entire, this is complete speculation. But there, there is lots of Jewish historical evidence that Isaiah was the one sawn in sunder. And how he was sawn in sunder is recorded, which I'll not describe right now. That it wasn't a nice sideways cut. And fulfilled what it says in Hebrews chapter 11, that some were sawn asunder. So this is just speculation, and this is what men that have studied the Bible have thought over the years, that with statements like this, it wouldn't have been too hard for the Jews to want to get that mouth away from them because of him saying, do you know how many times the word Gentiles, nations, and people are in this book, the book of Isaiah that we've just read? We are in there a lot, and he's going to end up burning the Jews and blessing the Gentiles before we finish today. Heavenly Father, thank you for the first verse. Thank you for calling us out of this world. Thank you for introducing yourself to us. We weren't seeking. We weren't asking. You changed us. And we thank thee. And we praise thee. And we are glad today. And we will glorify the word of the Lord any way that we can. And we are not ashamed of the truth that you have shown us. And let the world deride us or pity us. It will not move us. We will glorify your name, as we sang a few minutes ago. Let's go to the second lesson, verses 2 through 7. The rejection of the Jews for their wickedness. Verse 2. I have spread out my hands all the day unto a rebellious people, which walketh in a way that was not good after their own thoughts a people that provoketh me to anger continually to my face, that sacrificeth in gardens and burneth incense upon altars of brick, which remain among the graves and lodge in the monuments, which eat swine's flesh, and broth of abominable things is in their vessels, which say, stand by thyself, come not near to me, for I am holier than thou. These are a smoke in my nose, a fire that burneth all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence, but will recompense, even recompense into their bosom. Your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, saith the Lord, which have burned incense upon the mountains and blasphemed me upon the hills, therefore will I measure their former work into their bosom. Amen and amen. Amen. The judgment of God. If you look through the eyes of Isaiah, who was a prophet under at least four kings, the four kings mentioned in verse 1 of the book, and he may have lived briefly into the reign of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah. But if you think about Isaiah as he looks forward, I was going to give you heights of these three mountains, but it would be my own estimation of the worth, so I'm not going to do it. There was a little hill in his view, and we got a number of chapters about it, and it was Sennacherib of the Assyrians. He leveled all the fenced cities of Judah. There was nothing left but the city of Jerusalem. It was a huge blow. Shalmaneser, one of his predecessors, had already taken the ten tribes captive, The Assyrians were a mountain on the horizon. But behind that mountain was one far bigger. And it was of the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar of the Chaldeans who came and leveled the city of Jerusalem and burned down the temple and scattered them all. That was much bigger than Sennacherib who lost 185,000 soldiers and his expedition into Judah was a disaster for him. It wasn't a disaster for Nebuchadnezzar at all. And then behind that, there is one far greater, and that's the end of the nation, with a tribulation greater than any time in the history of the world before or after, and that's the ruin of Jerusalem by Titus and the Roman armies. So keep that in mind as he's looking forward. So because here's Isaiah back here with Hezekiah, and Assyria is the power, and Sennacherib comes in to Judah while Isaiah's preaching. So he's he's always looking forward and seeing these mountains. And we've progressed through the book toward the end. And so now Rome, Rome is in view. And we're going to see Rome. And I have preached Rome to you from Isaiah 66 before. And I'll show you when we get there. So we're going to see Rome. God is looking at them and saying, Listen, I am sick of your Jewish sins against me. Your fathers before you and you, are doing all these wicked things that I cannot stand. So I have chosen a people that were not seeking me. They weren't called by my name. They did not have the privilege of my adoption of them as my favorite nation. I have revealed myself to them. Because I'm rejecting you, and here's why. And verse 2, I've spread out my hands all the day unto a rebellious people, which walketh in a way that was not good after their own thoughts. Whenever you allow your thought to compete with the Bible, it ends up in a way which is not good. You cheat yourself. Your thoughts are inferior to the Word of God. Every thought you have ever had on any subject is inferior to the Word of God because the Word of God comes from the infinite mind of Jehovah. I am that I am and creator of the heavens and the earth, to see in all that in them is. And this rebellious people, though God had given them laws and precepts and statutes and judgments that made them the envy of the world, they didn't want to do things his way. And so they were rebellious. And so he he corrects them and indicts them in verse 2. This is why when you come into this church, there is going to be warfare made against your thoughts, because that's what I am commanded to do in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 4 through 6. I am to bring your thoughts into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Because right. all, we all have minds just a twirling with all the things that we think, but they're not good. And the rebellion against God, Lord, save us from such. Verse 3, a people that provoketh me to anger continually to my face. The Jews didn't hide it. You know, it'd be one thing If out in the back of the garage, where you had a workshop, you had this little idol, and you went back there and you closed the door, and you prayed, the Jews weren't like that. Manasseh put idols and altars to false gods in the temple of the Lord. And that's what broke the camel's back. That's what broke the Lord's mercy and long-suffering toward that nation. A people that provoketh me to anger continually to my face. They didn't even hide it. They were on every high hill. Do you think God sees what's going on on every high hill? But they were worshiping other gods on every high hill. That sacrificeth in gardens and burneth incense upon altars of brick. Any altar used in the worship of God had to be unhewn stone. It couldn't be brick. Because the pagans had bricks and built their altars that way. God wanted his altars to be made from stones he had made. And man hadn't touched, just put in a pile. Verse 4, they remain among the graves and lodge in the monuments. They love cemeteries more than church, more than worship, because they were necromancers. What were they doing in the cemeteries? They were wanting to communicate with the dead. Is there some problem in communicating with the living God? The living God, I am. That's living. I am that I, that's present tense. That's present tense twice. I am that I am. They wanted instead the dead. They wanted to communicate with the dead, Lord, have mercy, which eat swine's flesh. You know, for you to have your pepperoni pizza this afternoon, that's okay with the Lord, but it wasn't okay for them. And broth of abominable things is in their vessels. I mean, they had mouse soup. We're going to get it in chapter 66. They were ridiculous in what they ate because the pagans around them ate those kind of things. This is the Lord ripping his people that he had stretched out his arm. Will you come to me? Will you come to me? If I save you from Egypt with ten plagues and deliver you through the Red Sea, will you come to me? If I give you manna every morning that tastes like honeycomb, will you come to me? If I give you fresh water, will you come to me? If I give you your cities, your houses, your vineyards, your wells, all built, all the infrastructure in place, will you come to me? I've stretched out my hands all day long to a stubborn, rebellious people. And here they are being described. Now we can. We can say, if it hadn't been for the grace of God, we would be like them or worse. That's right. But we don't have to always be talking that way. Right. We can say, we're not going to be like that. Right. I w- we will be better than that. We have been better than that. And let's be better than that. Which say in verse 5, Stand by thyself. Come not near to me, for I am holier than thou. Can you think of any other place in the Bible where that occurred? Do you remember when the Pharisee prayed? He said, Lord, I thank thee that I'm not like this publican standing over here. That's what the Jews were known for. Their hypocrisy. Do you know what they did to the man born blind? They derided him. They despised him. Thou art a sinner. You don't know the law. Get out of here and they cast them out. The Jews. Let's never be like that. Let's be willing to stoop and help and encourage those that are cast down or those that are fallen. Let's be willing to forgive and throw fatted calf feasts for those that repent. Right. and let's never, let's never envy the celebration. Let's never be the older brother of Luke chapter 15. These are a smoke in my nose, a fire that burneth all the day. Do you know when you're walking around a campfire and you get in the wrong place at the wrong time and it blows up your nose and burns your nose? These are a smoke in my nose, a fire that burneth all the day. It was making God angry all the time about these Jews. Verse 6, Behold, it is written before me. Do you remember some of the statements in the Bible about governments, especially the Persian government? Let it be written and let it be done with speed. Because once they put something in writing, it was certain. Now God has various books. God has a book of remembrance if you'll think about him and think upon his name and speak to others. Malachi chapter 3. God has a book in which all your wanderings in life and all your tears are recorded. Psalm 56 and verse 8. God has another book. I am going to judge them. And so he committed himself in his mind in this prophetic similitude to judgment upon them. Behold, it is written before me, not written by Moses, not written before you, it's written before me. I will not keep silence any longer, but will recompense, even recompense into their bosom. I am going to repay these rebels. Let us never be these rebels. Where is the church of Corinth today? Where is the church of Rome today? Where is the church of Ephesus today? Let's never be rebels. He can take away our candlestick and then we're an organization and then we're gone instead of being an organism. Verse 7, Your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, all of you packed together, saith the Lord, which have burned incense upon the mountains and blasphemed me upon the hills, therefore will I measure their former work into their bosom. I'm going to combine it all together and blast them. Jesus would say in the New Testament, These be the days of vengeance that all things which are written might be fulfilled. Jesus said that. Luke 21, about verse 22. These be the days of vengeance. I'll recompense it into their bosom. You know, he recompensed it once with a little mountain called Assyria, a bigger mountain called Babylon, and a bigger one than that, a huge one called the Romans. And and as Isaiah looked forward, we, we get to look back. I feel sorry for Isaiah. He was God's man, but he didn't see things with the clarity that we do. We're looking back, and it's just so obvious and plain and simple to us as we look back. They crucified the Lord of glory. They killed the Son of God. They killed his prophets and apostles as well. And so God wrote it, committed himself to it. Does God need a book when you speak to others about his name, or is that something to help you along? I mean, it's, it's, just, it's a prophetic similitude. If God has a literal book, I wonder if he writes with a literal pen. As soon as, as, soon as we get the literal pen, then is it a literal hand? Because my God's a spirit. So just be careful. Nobody likes white horses more than I do in this church. But I've always wondered about those white horses. Do they have the same kind of sack underneath their tail as the horses downtown Greenville? I am not taking away the Bible from you, I'm just helping you understand it. I don't stop seeing white horses all the time. He's always on a white horse to me, with a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Can he still talk with that sword? Or is that sword a picture of him talking? And, And on and on we go, I don't want to take, just revel in the fact that God is committed. God commits himself to his people. God commits himself to remember those that think upon him. God commits himself to us by name. Jesus has a hand. There's every reason to believe that Revelation 20 has a book that is opened up with our names in it. Verse 8. We come to the third lesson of this chapter. Verse 1 just review, as you're looking at that chapter, it's in front of you on the printed page. As you look at that chapter, verse 1 was the calling of the Gentiles. We weren't looking for him, but he introduced himself to us. The people that he had spent so much time and effort on, that he described as sending prophets early, betimes, raising up more prophets, stretching out his hands and his arms to them, they had rebelled against him, and these are the ways in which they had done it. And so we come to a new section. And it's verses 8 through 10, and it describes God's electing grace in the nation of Israel. Verses 8 through 10 of Isaiah 65. Thus saith the Lord, As the new wine is found in the cluster, and one saith, Destroy it not, for a blessing is in it. So will I do for my servants' sakes, that I may not destroy them all. And I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob, and out of Judah, an inheritor of my mountains. And mine elect shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. And Sharon shall be a field, a fold of flocks, and the valley of Achor a place for the herds to lie down in, for my people that have sought me. If we had time, and I would would like to recommend this to you, and it's a chapter I said no to yesterday, because I had recommended it several weeks ago. It's Jeremiah 24. It's only 10 verses long, but it's good figs versus bad figs. Good figs are God's elect figs. Bad figs are his reprobate figs. And it's a very simple chapter, but it's God promising his blessing, renovation, reformation, and repentance on the good figs and his total destruction of the bad figs. It's just nice to remember that, that he has his election taking place within the nation. And even in the New Testament, Paul would say they are not all Israel, which are of Israel, because there was a distinction within the nation. We've already been taught this in the book of Isaiah in chapter 6, where he said there was a tenth left that he would consider as the seed of the nation. Do you remember that? In the 13th verse of Isaiah 6. Well, right here is this election again in verse 8. God God called Israel a vineyard. What kind of grapes did the vineyard produce? Wild grapes. Wild grapes. And he was looking for sweet grapes. But as he goes through the vineyard, ready to burn the whole thing to the ground or to cut it all down and start over again, someone says, here's a good cluster. Don't destroy it. There's a blessing in it. That's the election. You know, there's this whole vineyard and they're going through it and checking it out by hundreds of square feet at a time, but they see a cluster and it looks good. And so they take it. And it is for the vineyard, and it's the blessing, and it's the elect. And that's verse 8. Notice verse 9. And verse 8 said so that I'll not just so that I won't destroy them all. Otherwise, he would have destroyed them all if there hadn't been an elect remnant taken to Babylon. And then verse 10 notice that it says, I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob. It's not all of Jacob, it's not all the twelve sons of Israel the Israelites, Jacob equals Israel, and thus the father of the tribes, I'll bring forth a seed out of. Underline those words. Those words are precious. Those words are in Romans chapter 9 and verse 24, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. God's elect are of a group of people because they're pulled out of them and they're only a portion of them. And thus verse 9, I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob and out of Judah, an inheritor of my mountains. And they're called mine elect, and they'll inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. Isaiah, looking forward, saw that taking place. There was an elect remnant that had a revival after Sennacherib. There was an elect remnant that came out after Babylon. And there was an elect remnant that was entirely spiritual that survived the destruction of Jerusalem and hid in the mountains and caves of Perea across the Jordan River. And so we have an elect taking place, an election taking place, here at the end of the book of Isaiah. And God was going to bless that regathered group coming out of Babylon. In verse 10 he says, Sharon, which is a, called the plain of Sharon in the Bible, it stretches from Caesarea down toward Philistia. It was prime property for flocks, because being so close to the Mediterranean Sea and getting its moisture... Sharon shall be a fold of flocks and the valley of Acor a place for the herds to lie down. The valley of Acor is next to Jericho. It's where the Israelites first went when they crossed the Jordan River and came into Canaan next to the city of Jericho. And God says, I have this plan for my people that have sought me. Now why did they seek him? That's why you need to read about the, the good and the bad figs because God made the difference in them. God made the difference. And don't we know that? that God has not only regenerated us, not only called us, but he sustains us. He convicts us and he brings us back and he finds us. We're wandering off like sheep and he comes after us as the good shepherd. So there's the election that out of the great numbers and the great vineyard of Israel, God had a small portion, a cluster that was his and he brought them back. You know, you you read numbers of Battles in Israel of 400,000 on this side and 500,000 on that side. I mean, they they could have a civil war with a half a million on each side. Do you know how many came back from Babylon? 45,000. Were they all good? Not a chance. Ezra and Nehemiah had to spend so much effort against the weakness and pitifulness and carnality of the group that even came back. But there was an elect, and God preserved it. And the elect ran all the way into Romans chapter 11 where it says, And they are enemies of the gospel for your sakes, but they are beloved for the Father's sakes because he's going to tell us, you'll always have a remnant and a seed. I'll preserve some forever. Verses 11 and 16, lesson number four. God distinguished servants and reprobates. Now that we have the election in verses 8 through 10, watch the difference. Does God make differences in lives? He makes eternal differences And he makes earthly differences. And his differences are dramatic. Is it a benefit to live in the United States of America in 2020? In what way isn't it compared to other nations? We are so blessed. God makes huge differences. Here are the differences, and I read them to you in verses 11 through 16. But ye are they that forsake the Lord... That forget my holy mountain. Notice how we ended the election. They sought after me for my people that have sought me. That's the character of my elect. So now we have a different group, and he's gonna be contrasting back and forth. But there's one of those inspired disjunctives in contrast to those that sought me, but ye are they that forsake the Lord, that forget my holy mountain, that prepare a table. For that troop, and that furnish the drink offering unto that number. Therefore will I number you to the sword, and ye shall all bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, ye did not answer. When I spake, ye did not hear, but did evil before mine eyes, and did choose that wherein I delighted not. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God Now listen to this Behold, my servants shall eat, but ye shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but ye shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but ye shall be ashamed. Behold, my servants shall sing for joy of heart, but ye shall cry for sorrow of heart, and shall howl for vexation of spirit. And ye shall leave your name for a curse unto my chosen, for the Lord God shall slay thee, and call his servants by another name. That he who blesseth himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he that sweareth in the earth shall swear by the God of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hid from mine eyes. So this is a transitional point where God says, I have forgotten certain things and that's the sins of the Jews by their punishment in Babylon. All that former stuff I'm forgetting and I'm now going to measure you by your current conduct. And so he compares them. In verse 11... They do not care about him like the elect did. And instead, they were preparing a table of meat offerings and drink offerings. You know, people love to put out a table of food for an idol. They still do it around the world. They put out stuff for idols. I've seen it in Malaysia. And they'll buy cardboard toys for their gods. You know, if you can cough up 100 bucks, you can get a big screen. For your ancestors in heaven, and they give you a little one, and you can put it there in a little altar. And on and on they go. This was furnishing a table for the troop, a number, a large number of idols that furnished the drink offering unto that number to those gods. And so here's the Lord playing with the word number. But all of you saw it in your reading last night, right? The Lord plays with the word number. So you're going to prepare a drink offering for the number of your gods? I'm going to number you to the sword. And so he does in verse 12, Therefore will I number you to the sword, because when I called you wouldn't answer. And he uses the same language that Lady Wisdom does in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 20 through 32, when she says, When I offered you wisdom and you rejected it, I will bring your calamity upon you, and when your calamity comes, I will laugh at you. And then verses 13 and 14 are the five beholds. Behold, behold, or the four beholds of the contrast between the remnant that came out of Babylon. They ate, they drank, they were preserved and kept while the others starved in the siege were denied anything to drink and died. And they were howling in vexation of spirit while Nebuchadnezzar and the Chaldeans took the city, but not the righteous. They rejoiced that God was still with them and had preserved them and and raised up Cyrus for them. That's lesson four down through verse 16. My servants shall sing for joy because I'm going to favor their cause, and ye shall leave your name for a curse unto my chosen. Those Jews of that generation were left for a curse because they were called forsaken and they were called desolate. Do you remember? Forsaken and desolate, because he had reduced Jerusalem to desolation. But there was a Hephzibah, and there was a Beulah, and there was a not forsaken, and there was a sought out. Changed names, and then there was Christian versus the Jews, and the difference is dramatic and has been for two thousand years. The Jews killed Jesus; Christians love Jesus. Tremendous change. And so we come to verse 17, and lesson number 5. Messiah's kingdom is very different in its character from anything Israel had had before, and so it can be called new heavens and new earth. Isaiah 65 and verse 17. For behold, notice the for and the behold, is all these, this contrast between the righteous and the wicked is going to be exalted as high as it can on earth with the gospel era of Jesus Christ. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered, nor come into mind. But be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing, and her people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem, and joy in my people, and the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying." There shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not filled his days. For the child shall die a hundred years old, but the sinner being an hundred years old shall be accursed. And they shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and shall eat the fruit of them. They shall not build and another inhabit, they shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people, and mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands." They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble, for they are the seed of the blessed of the Lord, and their offspring with them. And it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the bullock, and dust shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, saith the Lord." This is the change in character that we were introduced to in Isaiah chapter 11 when the ensign of of the root of David would be raised up, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a description of the change in character of his kingdom versus the kingdoms they had ever had before. We do not run to the new heavens and the new earth of Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3. There is absolutely no reason to do that except the words. And the Bible tells us to rightly divide the word of truth and not just go by words. Has he used wor- verses like words like this before of new heavens and earth? How about this one? Haggai chapter 2. Your pastors, One of your pastor's favorite passages. I will shake the heavens and I will shake the earth. Is that future or past? It's past by 2,000 years. Right. Paul said it had been fulfilled already in the time of reformation of the New Testament. And on and on I could go and show you. I don't have the time. You know, all the way through this book, I have asked you, would you look at Isaiah 13, because it's the burden of Babylon. And way down toward the end of it, it says the Medes and the Persians. Well, as soon as you read those two verses, and you know exactly what it's talking about. Just like we know exactly what it's talking about with chapters 65 and 66. It's talking about the Gentiles being brought in. It doesn't say it here in this chapter. It's going to say it the next about the new heavens and the new earth. And so once we know the context, then we look at the verses and how do they fit. And it's how you've got to study the prophets. We were told that they used similitudes. There's not really a new heavens. and There's not really a new earth. When we say new heavens, does that mean that God has to build a new house? I mean, for himself? I mean, he's in the third heaven. It just gets into serious trouble if you don't follow context. And so I say to you, when the, when the Bible says in Haggai, I will shake the heavens and the earth, do you know what happens when people want to be literalists? And anyone who's tempted right now to be a literalist right here, you are in such serious trouble, you'll never understand the Bible. The Bible told us that the prophets used similitudes. That means a word picture. Mm-hmm. That means a simile. A similitude is a simile. Do you know what everyone else does that's called a Christian? When I say everyone else... I mean 99%. They look at Haggai and say the heavens have never been shaken. The earth has never been shaken, therefore it's future. They go to Matthew chapter 24. It's never happened, literally, so it's still future. They go to Acts 2. Blood, fire, and vapor of smoke, and the constellations and the stars and moon are not going to give their light. Well, that hasn't happened yet, so it must be future. It has all happened because they are prophetic similitudes of word pictures. And the Lord told us they were word pictures in Hosea 12:10. The Lord told us to rightly divide the word of truth. We have context, which is the future of Israel being brought back from Babylon, surviving, and then being blessed and exploding in growth with the addition of the Gentiles. So then when we look at new heavens and a new earth, that's the gospel era of the New Testament. And it is so different, so different in character, you can just call it new heavens and a new earth because everything's been changed. The old heavens were shaken away. Haggai, Hebrews 12 says, they were already shaken away, wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. I've got to do this. Okay. What I just shared with you, I believe 100%. But here's where we, you know, and we're, we're in a small group. If we went back 150 or 200 years ago, everybody understood it. Nobody thought the new heavens and, and earth here was, set, was Peter's new heavens and earth because they understood the context. They understood these are the Jews coming out of Babylon. We're looking toward Messiah and what's going to happen with the Romans. I mean, if you, if you miss the context, then you're lost but here's what we've got to do. Some of those men became preterists, very few of them, but some of them, and they're vocal. And we've had to deal with preterists before in this church. What happens with the preterist is he gets spiritualizing like this and and similitude so much in his mind that when he comes to the New Testament, and I speak even of John Owen right now, and he is the one I want to speak about right now. John Owen, chaplain for Oliver Cromwell. And the man who wrote the book The Death of Death and Death of Christ, which is the most exhaustive proof that Jesus only died for the elect, that I read when I was a teenager and I thank God for him in that book, but I do not thank God for him for this. When he got to 2 Peter chapter 3, he said the new heavens and the new earth and everything melting with fervent heat was the Old Testament economy of Moses melting away and the new heavens and the new earth were the gospel era of what I'm telling you that this is. And this is how we rightly divide the word of truth. When you go to 2 Peter chapter 3 and we're not doing it right now, but I hope that you can remember it. It said that there was a world that then was, that was being overflowed with water, perished. What kind of a world was that? Was that the mosaic economy of the Old Testament form of worship? Or was that the geological, physical earth that was going to melt with fervor? Right there in the context, we are told. Right. Context, context, context. John Owen was right in Isaiah 65 and 66. He was wrong in 2 Peter 3. All the futurists we have to deal with today, they understand about the new heavens and the new earth from 2 Peter chapter 3. They just don't know about this one. So when they go back here and find new heavens and the new earth, well, that's got to be the same thing. And so once it's the same thing, then they envision this millennial kingdom of the Jews. And they're going to be raising sheep again and they're going to be having mouse broth again. And so where are we? Right down the crown of the road. Isaiah 65 and 66 applies to the New Testament era of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 2 Peter chapter 3, because of its context, which is very plain about the physical geological earth that was overflowed with water in the days of Noah is being reserved and held in store for a day that is coming in which it will melt with fervent heat. We say, well, that one's literal. say, how do you know that? By following God's rules. The prophets use similitudes, so I look for it. Rightly divide the word of truth and let context be our, what's my master? Who whips me every day in my office, leaving stripes across me every single day? Context. Context is our master. I just wasted. I hope it wasn't a waste. God has saved us from preterism. God has saved us from dispensationalism. Dispensationalism, Isaiah 65 and 66 are literal. Preterism, 2 Peter 3 is spiritual. No way. We just drive right between them at high speed. Pedal to the metal. Just hold that steering wheel straight and look for the dotted yellow line. Are yellow lines dotted? Verses 17 through 25 are what we just read. I'm going to create something new. You, you that have loved me, I'm going to get rid of those reprobates. There's going to be such a difference in their character, in their blessings from me. You're going to be glad and rejoice in Jerusalem because I'm going to create Jerusalem a rejoicing, verse 18. That rejoicing, if you read Zacharias, Elizabeth, Mary, Simeon, Anna, that rejoicing is the New Testament. Like I said, Acts chapter 13, and when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. I'll create Jerusalem a rejoicing. You say, well, what about, I get verses 18 and 19. Yes, because all of chapters 60 through 62 were about it. 40 was about it. 42 was about it. Yeah, 54 was about it. 55 was about it. 56 was about it. Yeah, all those chapters were about this very thing of creating Jerusalem a place of joy in the earth by the gospel and bringing in Gentiles and exploding it in size and spiritual blessings. Well, what about verse 20? That's a prophetic similitude of long life, because long life is something that we desire for ourselves and for our children, and it just uses wild terminology to get it across. Infants aren't going to die in infancy because they're in a siege with the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Romans. They're going to be preserved. Children are going to live to be 100 years old, and if if a wicked man ends up living to be 100 years old, he's still going to have to die under the curse of Christ. All that jammed into one verse. It is a prophetic similitude of the good life the good life to be considered spiritually. No one in this room is going to live to be 100. Most likely. It's a prophetic similitude of prosperous times. Nobody wants to die young in prosperous times. When when, uh, Sennacherib came into Judah, when Nebuchadnezzar came into Judah, did men die before their times? Absolutely. You won't have to under Messiah. And see, we're not, just, we're not talking about physical life because it's of such little importance, and that's why he throws in the word hundred as if anybody can live to be a hundred. Which is, what does the Bible say about man's longevity? 70, if by reason of strength, eighty. The issue is spiritual, but he's using a prophetic similitude of what is the good life? What would make people really happy to live a long and full life and to have your children live a long and full life so that you can see the children of the fourth generation like Job did? That's what verse 20 is. And that's what verse 20 means. And that is the sense of verse 20 because of the context of verse 20. Verse 21 and 22, they're going to build houses and inhabit them and enemies won't live in those houses and take them while they're occupying the land. They're going to have farms and they're going to be able to eat their produce produce, rather than someone else stealing it. This was something that was promised to Israel in judgment that if they disobeyed God, God would cause enemies to come in and eat their produce. That hurt. And enemies to come in and take over their houses. And enemies don't treat your house very well when they're there. And so that was a problem. And that was a warning of God to the Jews. But he's saying here, under the reign of Messiah, this new situation that we're going to have, you're going to be preserved. You're going to be preserved in your longevity. How long am I going to live as a son of God under the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever. What am I going to lose by some enemy trying to take it from me by burning me at the stake? Nothing. Nothing. You say, this is hard for me. Well, we got to the last two chapters. I'm glad you thought the earlier ones were easy. I'd like to sit down with you over lunch and go over chapter 18. It's only got six verses in it. I have a few questions. <laughs> I taught you the best I could out of 18. 21 and 22, a common thing in Israel. They build houses, they plant vineyards, they plant fields, and then enemies come in. But mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. You know, when we get to heaven, we're going to get a reward for everything we've done on earth. What are we, what are we told to do? Don't faint. We're, we're not to faint in our work for the Lord because we shall reap in due time. You say, you're really spiritualizing. Yes, I am. You can send me a note of appreciation later. Yes, I am spiritualizing because the carnal is worthless. The spiritual is everything. We reap spiritually. How would Isaiah tell it, say it otherwise? How, what, how do you think he should have said it? when he's preaching to an audience 600 BC. I think he did a great job. I happen to like the Bible just the way it's written, even though it requires a great deal of work. Verse 23, you can take this as a family verse if you want. It's one of the best in the Bible for it. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble, for they are the seed of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and says, for the promises unto you and to your children, and as many as the Lord our God shall call. Verse 24 It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they are yet speaking, I will hear. There will be a new open relationship between God and his elect people. Is there? Is, did Jesus Christ open up a new and living way right in the presence of God? Did God give the Holy Spirit to pray for us with groanings which cannot be uttered? And by him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father and who also prays for us according to the will of God? You know, whenever you pray, you should be worried about your fervency and your content. The Holy Spirit takes care of both in Romans chapter 8. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together and the lion shall eat straw like the bullock. Is this true of the churches of Jesus Christ? We learned it in Isaiah chapter 11. The character of the wolf is changed so that he doesn't eat the lamb. The lion's character is changed so that he becomes an herbivore and eats straw like the bullock. It's a change in character. And here we are, a bunch of wolves, lambs, not too many of them, but lions and bullocks. And then we have something added. These were four verses long in Isaiah 11 verses 6 through 9 in Isaiah 11. Here we have, and dust shall be the serpent's meat. So I had to study snakes this week as one of the things I had to study. Did you know that all snakes are carnivores? All snakes are carnivores. They want meat. And they're lethal. And they have terrible bites. But the Lord's just going to leave them right down there eating the dust where he promised the first one, over there in Genesis chapter three. And so there's just safe, so the snakes that get in among us, they're just gonna eat dust because the Lord's gonna protect us and he changes character. And he changes character so that they're happy down there, just slithering around and not hurting anyone. It's the word of the Lord. And you know what? The the conclusion of this chapter is the same as it says in Isaiah chapter 11, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, saith the Lord. There's gonna be peace the prince of peace is going to make peace by changing our nation our natures do you remember in isaiah 11 that when it gave us these verses it said the envy of ephraim and the end of judah will end envy the envy of ephraim and the envy of judah will end ephraim is a name for the 10 tribes Judah is the name for the two tribes. They hated each other. They had civil war very often. But in trying to help you understand this 25th verse, in helping you understand Isaiah 11 about the wolf and the lamb and all that, he said, I'm going to take away that envy between the two of them so they're both going to love each other. And they're going to be friends and they're going to build highways from Assyria to Egypt with Jerusalem right in the middle to bring in the Gentiles along with them. And so that was Isaiah 11, and it is the conclusion of Isaiah 65. After break, when we come back and look at Isaiah 66, you will see the same expression of new heavens and a new earth, and you will see the same expressions about making Jerusalem rejoicing, but there's going to be more information for you to know that we did 65 right because it's going to talk about bringing in the Gentiles. And it's going to talk about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and the end of that nation and the flourishing of the gospel church ever since. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.